right. It feels right. It's good to have everybody. Don't forget, like Jimmy said, we've got our conversation groups going, and whether you're able to participate in a conversation group or not, on the app, if you go to the section that says peacemaking, there's a section that says a fresh perspective, and that's where every week we put just kind of some daily reading and some questions for reflection. And if you do want to participate in a conversation group, we've got the one going on Monday and then as well on Thursday evening. We had a great time this last Thursday. Um, it was awesome because I didn't talk. I just, here's the question, go talk about it. And we had a group of folks. So if there's a topic that we explore and you want to come out and be a part of it, that'd be great. So this week, we're talking about the Bible in our conversation group, which was last week's topic. So you should have seen the, the collective room when I was like, we're going to be a week behind. Everybody's like, oh, so, um, but if, if you'd like to unpack some of those things we, we uh, explored last week, that'd be great. My name is Ryan. If you're a guest, thanks for being here. Uh, it's good to have you. Also, um, so the Dieters had their baby this week, and maybe you've seen Kellen and Michelle. Kellen plays bass, Michelle plays the piano, the Sandinos, and they had their baby as well. I know Kellen is here somewhere, so congratulations. There he is. So, I don't, I don't even know the name. Tell me the Narelle. Awesome. That's beautiful. So make sure you congratulate them. And if you see tears and red eyes, you'll know why. Um, so no, it's really good. So good to be together. Hey, I grew up in a, um, in, a, in a church culture, a denomination that kind of taught and held something called the 16 fundamental truths. And that always seemed weird to me. But I was handed this and uh, 16 fundamental truths of which most of those 16 fundamental truths Jesus never said anything about, yet they became fundamental truths. And kind of in my journey, um, I, I spent some time ministering in a church where I received my ordination, which is just kind of like your, I don't know, it's a weird thing that we do in church world, but it's kind of like your you know, certification. You can now go and mess people up spiritually is kind of what it means, I guess. I don't know. Pretend you know what you're doing, you know. Um, and my, my, my first ordination happened in the local church. It was really a beautiful experience. Um, and it was just kind of like the church affirming a call on your life to this work. And I ended up uh, going and serving at a church that was part of the denomination that I grew up in, but I had been outside of it. And so I kind of became a part of the denomination, moved my credentials there, and knew I had this like 16 fundamental truth issue that I was going to have to kind of wrestle through. And after being in the denomination a few, uh, a few years, I kind of like came to this space where every year you have to like, you had to check a box that said you wholeheartedly agreed with these 16 fundamental truths. And I, along with most everybody in the denomination, did not wholeheartedly agree with the 16 fundamental truths, but I was dumb enough to che not check the box, right? I was dumb enough to just be honest. And I said, I don't know that I wholeheartedly agree with anything, <laughs> first of all, uh, let alone these things. And, and you know, I said, I'll just I won't teach against them. I think these are reasonable interpretations of some of these things, but I'll, you know, I'm, I'm happy to continue. I think this is a beautiful denomination, but I, I just want to be honest. I can't blah, blah. So I'm thinking it's not going to be any problem because I got friends all throughout the denomination that really are, agree with me, um, we, but just kind of go through the sign. Well, that was, you know, <laughs> come to find out, <laughs> not checking that box was a little bit of a big deal. <laughs> And so that was the first denomination I got kicked out of. Um, <laughs> so I immediately got a phone call and uh, was invited to lunch at Applebee's, uh, which first of all, I, I mean, I hate to say this, but 
I don't like Applebee's. And I don't know, maybe it goes back to that conversation. I don't know what it is. But um, so we're having this conversation, and, and it became clear really quickly that the denomination was in this point of like, okay, this was no longer acceptable. There could not be people a part of it, right? And so, you know, I was told in that conversation by, you know, kind of the higher ups that, hey, it's best if you don't renew, don't reapply for credentials because they're not going to go through and then you'll have to go through this process and blah, 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 blah. And I thought to myself, okay, whatever, no big deal. But it did, it set a series of dominoes in effect because of the church I was at that was part of the denomination, things like that. But what happened to me in that moment was quite fascinating, was that this group, this group, this denomination that I had grown up in, I'd spent my whole life in it. I had gone to a, a school that was uh, sponsored by this denomination. It was a liberal arts college. Um, so I went and got my undergraduate degree from them. Um, I had volunteered. We, even when I wasn't part of the denomination, I was volunteering in leadership when I was doing student ministry and running their camps. And I wasn't in one of those churches, but we were bringing our students and our kids to their events, being supportive of it. It was, I had all kinds of friendships and just colleagues that I worked with. And my father, who's still a part of that denomination, um, was, was teaching at one of the Bible colleges. I mean, this was my heritage. And it, in, a, in a lunch at Crabblebee's, it just... <laughs> was, oh, I said Crabblebee's, not Applebee's. Sorry. That was my Freudian slip. Um, it just didn't matter. Like, and I thought it was no big deal. Like, in that moment, I was like, whatever. But then it, like, started to mess with me, because then it, like, the anger sets in. And, like, this is what's wrong with religion. This is jacked up. Like, how can you spend your whole life with a group of people and then just be dismissed in a moment? And, like, what happened was and is and still does happen is that absolute certainty around statements and beliefs that have developed over, in this group, you know, a hundred years, but that have developed sometimes over a couple hundred years or a thousand years, like absolute certainty about those statements had become the litmus test for authentic faith, a standard for community engagement. And we were, these weren't called like 16 like distinctives. This is, this is how we think about the Christian life, and it's different, like fundamental truths, right? And in that moment, like I think that was one of the like defining moments that kind of set me on a course of like, some, some filthy language, I'm sure, at times, and just like disenchantment with the whole structure, like this is anti-Christ, this has nothing to do with Jesus. And for many of us in our lives, like you might be able to kind of point back to an experience where faith had been reduced and became synonymous with this idea of believing certain statements. So when someone like asks you, you know, are you a Christian? or someone says you go to church, right? That usually means something like you have a certain set of beliefs or statements that you hold to, right? And so to say you believe in God or Jesus or are you a Christian is reduced not to the way in which you live and love, encounter the world, encounter God, but it's do you assent to certain things, right? Certain sets of beliefs. So do you believe a set of statements to be true, right? whether those statements are termed biblical teaching, whether those statements are called doctrines or dogmas. Like what has happened is this idea of being Christian has turned into, do you believe in these things? Do you believe? Like 
You have faith if you believe in a six-day creation story, literally. You have faith if you believe that Israel was and is, to this day, God's chosen nation on earth, right? Do you, you have faith if you believe literally in things like, and this is good, I'm not saying you shouldn't, I'm just saying this is what it amounts to now. Like, do I believe literally the virgin birth? Do I believe literally that wise men showed up at a manger? Do I believe literally that the miracles happened as they were said? Do I believe literally in a doctrine of atonement called penal substitutionary theory that says, we're all doomed and destined for hell because of how bad we are, because of our rebellion, and the only way you don't get to burn in hell is by saying this prayer. Like, that's what, like, Christian faith has been reduced to. And then it gets into things like, well, do you believe in baptism for adults or do you believe in baptism for babies? Do you believe in a literal conscious tormenting hell? Do you believe in annihilationism? And, and, and what happens over time is those beliefs in, in statements determine whether or not you are a Christian, right? And, and, and this has become like a problem, not because there's a problem with believing certain things to be true. That can be very powerful and important. But when that becomes the litmus test for being Christian, for following Jesus, right? When that happens, a natural progression starts to take place, right? When faith becomes synonymous with what I believe factually or what I believe as statements, that leads to something called dogmatism. Now, dogmatism is not the love of dogs. I am a dog lover. It's not, I don't understand cats. Don't get them, but that's okay. Some of you do. No problem. We're inclusive, even of cat people here. Even, I don't know if I affirm you, but I will include you. That, that I can do. That I can do. I'm a work in progress, right? But dogmatism is this idea that there's a set of beliefs, a set of doctrines, a set of principles that I hold without consideration of other perspectives, right? That these are the things that shape me, that guide me, that I hold true there, that, that it's my 16 fundamental truths, whatever it might be. And then those become the filter, the test for authentic Christian faith. Now, this, this progression from, say, faith and statements, and this is what I believe, to, okay, I hold these things, and now I have dogmatism, like, there's, there's some pretty negative consequences to this, this idea of faith that has come up. Five in particular, right? This idea of faith that is about statements that I believe, that, that eventually will come and become dogmatism, it leads to things like closed-mindedness. Like, I'm unwilling to consider. I, I, I walk around, la, 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 la. <laughs> but can we talk about the, la, 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 well, what if Jesus, ah, you know, like we just, we become very close-minded and, and, and we, and it's hard because what's happened is our understanding of the world, the way it's shaped is grounded in that we have to believe certain things. And if those things get called into question because of science or reality, like a lived experience, we, we aren't quite sure what to do with that. So we have no openness, right? And we all suffer with these to a certain degree, right? Like if you don't think you're close-minded, then you're close-minded about being close-minded, Gotcha, right? Say so. So another thing that happens is polarization. I don't know if you're familiar with this word, uh, polarization. Uh, that's when people continue to move farther and farther and farther and farther apart from, say, a center that would ground us and make us normal, human, loving beings. So we are, I don't know if you've heard this or not, but like our nation's a little polarized, right? It's like, get to the extremes. And when those dogmatic beliefs right, becomes so certain, then it divides us. We can't listen to other beliefs, right? And so we move to the edges, and we get more and more extreme. And what happens in those extremes, we become intolerant. We become intolerant of other ways of being, 
Forget about other ways of being Christian. We just get intolerant of other ways of being. And what happens then? And that leads to discrimination and persecution. And the worst of it is when we justify our discrimination and our persecution as if we're doing something for God. You'll, I mean, violence never sleeps better than when it's done in the name of God. Like we've seen that. And then we find ourselves like intolerant and judgmental. And then we're totally resistant to any kind of change because we've like doubled down now. And that's what dogmatism does. We can't evolve. We can't grow. We can't change because dogmatism is like, well, don't think critically, right? There's a lack of critical thinking that sets into our lives when we start to fall into the trap that faith is ultimate adherence to a set of statements about God or about Jesus. And the bottom line for dogmatic faith, right? Faith as believing, cognitive assent to certain statements is that We just hold these things with absolute certainty, and we refuse to consider other people's opinions. We refuse to recognize that I might be wrong. We are incapable of modifying our beliefs to the current realities around us. We reject alternative perspectives just outright. Closed-mindedness sits in. No critical thinking, no self-reflection. We don't evolve. We don't shape. Now, the Bible has a word for this. The Bible calls this state of existence right? Closed-mindedness, so sure of who you are, unwilling to be molded and shaped. You know what the Bible word for this is? Hard-heartedness. Now, some of you are like me. I grew up like, oh, hard-heartedness is, is actually about not accepting. <laughs> I got to be careful how I say this. Like, hard-heartedness ultimately was about, was used for people who wouldn't accept my version of God. But hard-heartedness hits, hits hard everywhere, right? It doesn't matter whether you're my brand of Christian, the brand of Christian down the street. We can become hard-hearted and fundamentalist, and there's no space for it, and we're unmoldable, unshapeable, right? And so that word is hard heart, and that's what happens with dogmatism. Whether we're dogmatically correct, whether we're dogmatically incorrect, it just leads to a certainty that hardens our hearts. And one of the beautiful metaphors of salvation within Scripture is what? Take my heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. And what sets that heart of stone is that we are so certain about our experiences that no matter what happens, it's part of the story of the Exodus, no matter what happens around us, we can't hear it, we can't see it. And when the heart becomes hard, we're left with what? The head. We're left with cognitive reasoning, and and that's it. That's all we have. And the fascinating thing is that being Christian has become a matter of the head. If I can believe certain things, then I can be a Christian. Then I can follow Jesus. Then I can be a part of a church. And there's a whole swath of us that are like, that didn't work for me. That didn't work for me. Marcus Borg in his book, The Heart of Christianity, which is kind of the skeleton. By the way, you should know something about me, okay? I have zero original thoughts. None whatsoever right? Some of y'all are so wonderful. You're like, oh, I've never heard this. I'm like, well, you need to read this book because that's where I heard it, you know? Like, I just want you to be very clear. Like, I am totally plagiarizing and standing on the, like, shoulders of people that have been thinking about this stuff for a long time. So, lest you think you're here getting some original content, no. You're just hearing it for the first time, okay? And so, like, kind of a skeleton that's helping us organize our thoughts is this beautiful book called The Heart of Christianity by a guy named Marcus Borg. And in it, he writes this, prior to the modern period, the most common Christian meanings of the word faith were not matters of the head, but matters of the heart. In the Bible and the Christian tradition, the heart is a metaphor for a deep level of the self, a level below our thinking, our 
feeling, our willing, our intellect, our emotion, and volition. The heart is thus deeper than any conscious self and the ideas we have in our heads. Faith concerns the deeper level of the self. Now, when faith turns into something other than the deeper level of the self, right, a disease sets in that hardens the heart. Now, a guy named Peter Enns wrote a book called The Sin of Certainty. And in this book, The Sin of Certainty, that's what he calls the condition, right? The condition of that hardness comes from this sin of certainty. And it's the belief that my understanding of God and my understanding of the Bible or my tradition's understanding of God in the Bible or my churches or whatever, whoever, whatever the, 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 the thing is that gives us that understanding is accurate and certain, and there's no room for doubt or questioning, right? If as soon as you doubt or question, then you, you have weak faith, and we completely misuse a passage of Scripture about weak and strong faith, completely butcher that. And in this book, The Sin of Certainty, ends argues kind of two major points about kind of what we'll call authentic faith. He would say that authentic faith involves a willingness to question and wrestle with difficult theological concepts. See, I think difficult and theological is kind of an oxymoron. I think we could just go with theological concepts, right? Implicit is their difficulty, right? But real faith wrestles with that over and over again. And then secondly, he recognizes that our understanding of God and our understanding of the Bible is always subject to change and growth. And I love that he calls this inability to change and grow, to be settled into our beliefs, what I'm calling the hardness, or what the Bible is calling hardness of heart, right? That he calls it a sin, and he says it's the sin of certainty. And there's this beautiful like, statement in Scripture that where there is sin, there's death. And you've experienced this. You don't necessarily think like this because you're normal, right? But where there's sin, there's death. Where there's woundedness, something dies. When you sin against your, your spouse or your partner or your children, something dies in that moment. Trust, intimacy, whatever it might be. And it has to have what? Resurrection, right? So what happens when the sin of certainty sets in our lives, right, is that faith, as a beautiful way of the heart, a way of heart living, we'll say, with God, it dies on the altar of certainty. It's sacrifice. It's just, it's forget it. The two can't coexist in a sense. And so faith no longer becomes a matter of the heart, becomes a matter of the head. And then when I think I have it all figured out, I can start to say who's in and who's out. And so all this to say, we've got to explore a, flesh, a fresh perspective on the word faith, what we mean by that. So the first thing about a fresh perspective on faith is that it honors, right, that faith, the word faith, has always been central to this tradition, that faith from, from the earliest communities seeking to follow Jesus was a big deal. All but 27, all but two of the 27 New Testament writings, right, that were included in the Bible, like they have either the word noun, the, the noun, faith, or the verb, believe, in them. I mean, it's, it's foundational. We see Jesus all throughout Scripture acknowledging faith. Jesus spoke about and he responded to faith. A few times where he does this, Matthew chapter 8, verse 10, says that when Jesus heard this, this was a foreigner talking about how he believed what Jesus could do. When he heard this, he was amazed and said to those that were following him, amen. <laughs> I say to you, in no one in Israel have I found such faith. This is a person who has no concept of Israelite belief systems, what you're supposed to hold true about God, about their, their God, their deity. And Jesus is like, I haven't seen anything like this, and you all know about God. This is crazy. In Matthew chapter 9, it says the people brought him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. 
And when Jesus saw their faith, the, friends that, the, the faith of the friends that brought the friend, he said to the paralytic, courage, take courage, child. Your sins are forgiven. Always a funny statement if the story were truly accurate. You've got to match the paralytic's like, awesome. <laughs> so kind of you, Jesus. There's a whole reason why it starts there in all these stories. But what does Jesus acknowledge? He acknowledges the faith. He gave, I don't know if you know it or not, in the story, there's no pop quiz. <laughs> it's like, okay, I appreciate your courage to bring him. I just have to ask you a few questions about your understanding of God. And have you invited me into your heart as your personal Lord and Savior? <laughs> Are we allowed to laugh at that? I don't know. That might be inappropriate. I can laugh because I've done it multiple times, right? But like Jesus, like I, he saw faith. He recognized it. A few verses later, Matthew 9, 22, Jesus turns and looks at a woman who had fought through the crowd, reached out, touched his garment, believing that, that, that her only hope was in this Jesus. And he says, courage, daughter, your, your faith has saved you. And from that hour, the woman was cured, right? So Jesus knew like there was something about this idea of faith that was fundamental to an encounter with God. And then Paul, right? Paul, who comes along, has a, a radical experience with this risen Jesus, the, the risen Christ. Paul comes, and he writes about the power of faith to transform the world in, in almost all of his letters when he's writing to communities. One of the major themes of Paul's writings is this idea of justification by faith. In Galatians chapter 3, the letter to the Galatians is like Basically, him writing a letter to a group of people that have been duped, he thinks. He thinks they've fallen back into this trap that it matters what you believe, and it matters how you respond to the law, and that's what God cares about. And he's like, this is crazy. He's losing his head in the letter, like classic Paul, right? And he talks about it, and he talks about the scriptures that saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Now, he's writing in a letter saying, stop trying to follow all these things that you've been told are right about God. Stop that. Stop it. Stop it. He smacks their spiritual hand. Bad. Right? But he says it's by faith. His, the first letter, the oldest letter that we have, right? First Thessalonians is probably the oldest authentic letter from Paul that we have. And in his like opening remarks to this group that live in Thessaloniki, he says, we give thanks to God for all of you, remembering you in our prayers, unceasingly calling to mind I love this phrase, your work of faith and labor of love. Your work of faith and labor of love. And endurance and hope for our Lord Jesus Christ before our God and Father. Not a whole lot there that like, is honed in on this idea of, we're just so grateful that you got it all right. That you figured everything out. No, there's this like, work of faith. And if you're sitting in this room or if you're tuning in right now, then you are a part of what's called the Protestant tradition whether you like it or not. And, and, and faith, whether we like it or not, is especially important for those of us that are part of the Protestant tradition because the Protestant Reformation that really began with Martin Luther, like one of the grounding statements was faith alone. It was in response to injustices of the church, this idea that the selling of indulgences that were taking place that could get you into heaven, to get you right with God. And so there was this grounded statement like, no, we've got to get back to justification by faith through grace, right? Justification by grace through faith. Maybe you've heard it called saving faith, right? So that's just kind of part of the heritage here. So we first of all recognize you can't, we just can't throw out the word faith. 
it would be very impossible to live in the stream of Jesus' spirituality, what I would call peacemaking faith, the Christian tradition, without honoring this word faith. But in doing so, a fresh perspective seeks to recover like the rich meaning of the word faith, to kind of move beyond just this first meaning of to assent to a state of beliefs and to recognize we have to come into a more beautiful, fuller, pre-modern understanding because the one that we're holding right now is just a product of modernity. And so in his book, The Heart of Christianity, Borg does this for us. He lays out these four types of faith and he uses Latin words. And I thought about using them to make myself sound really smart, uh, but I haven't taken Latin for about 25 years, so it's probably better not to. But he lays these four types out. And the first bit, the first way of understanding faith is just this, is faith as assent. And that's what we've been talking about. Now, we honed in on the problems of it, but it's important, right? We give one's mental assent to a propositional truth statement. Now, this has become the dominant reason for two, the dominant way of thinking about faith for two big reasons, right? First of all, the Reformation, right? <laughs> the Reformation that said faith alone, and then all of a sudden, like, it, everybody started arguing about what, what to believe, and then we have all these denominations that creep up, right? Based on what we believed. So, you were known as an Anabaptist, not because of following Jesus, but your distinctive was, this is what we believe about something. We believe about baptism, right? Or, you were part of the Swiss Reformation because you believed something differently. So belief starts to, as, as a sense, starts to really take hold. And then you have the Enlightenment, right? The birth of modern science, a scientific way of knowing, and then faith comes into conflict with science for the first time ever. And now faith is about believing kind of iffy things, <laughs> things that might seem unreasonable. So like faith was about believing the earth was still the center of the universe. Faith was believing in, no, God actually literally created in six days because now we're seeing science. Tell you so. so all that's coming about in the Enlightenment. So we're doubling down on, the, on this idea of belief statements. So, so faith became kind of believing in iffy things. <laughs> I don't know about that. Because pre-Reformation and pre-Enlightenment, faith as assent was no problem because it wasn't, there were no iffy things. Nobody was arguing whether or not the earth was the center of the universe. Nobody was arguing the idea of six days of creation. Nobody was arguing some of these things. There, there was just, that was the way the world worked. So with no iffy things, there was no conflict yet. So it didn't have a major component, but then it just starts to take over. So it was there, but it just wasn't as important. It wasn't as, as emphasized. So I would say, as, as a fresh perspective on faith, there's three foundational affirmations that the Christian tradition, the Christian faith claims that it'd be really tough to say, I'm following the peacemaking path of Jesus if I don't follow these or think about or assent to these three principles. Are you ready for them? They're super complex. <laughs> One, all of Christian tradition, there's never been a time in the history of Christianity or any Christian sect or denomination that did not accept the reality of God. Now, we've talked about what that reality is, and we've disagreed on what that looks like, but there is this belief fundamental to the Christian faith that says God is real. <laughs> there is a more out there. There is a really real. There is a ground of being. There is something that is beyond us, right? So, so that's always been a statement. Then the second thing that is fundamental, an affirmation that is part of like a cognitive ascent to is Jesus is central. Like, so Jesus is central. Like, Part of the Christian tradition has always been that Jesus is the decisive disclosure of God. And when you see Jesus, 
you see what a full life of God looks like. I love the statement that I heard. I'm not sure where, so I'll just steal it. I've always said <laughs> that Jesus did not come to show us how to be divine, but what it means to be human. Like Jesus really was here to show us, like, this is what full humanity is. This is available to everybody. So Jesus is central. And this doesn't need, by the way, to lead to Christian exclusivism. But that's for another day. <laughs> and then the third thing is the centrality of the Bible. Like, the Bible is our And we spent all this time last week on this. But in some way, if Jesus is the Word of God made flesh, right, metaphor, but understanding that the wisdom of God, the creative reality of God, all that we could think about God and understand of God. If Jesus is the Word of God made flesh, then in some way, the Bible, right, is a disclosure, and we can find that same living Word of God throughout it. That doesn't mean the words are the Word of God. We've talked, we talked about that last week, but it just means this is our book, right? This is our story. We're a part of this. It shapes our vision of God. It shapes our life. It shapes the way I think about you and me and others, right? It's, it's part of our tradition. So those are the three. Like, if you're not going to hold to those three, it's going to be really tough to exist in this peacemaking ecosystem that we call Christianity, okay? Again, like, not, not super complex. Notice I didn't say anything in there about the Trinity because that hasn't always been a part of Christian tradition. That developed later on. But it's just, okay, there's, there is a God, Jesus, and the Bible. And what's fascinating about this ascent is that we all know it's kind of powerless. Like, faith as ascent is powerless, right? So believing a set of claims to be true really doesn't have much transforming power for myself or for the world. James chapter 2, verse 19 says this. James chapter 2, James is talking about faith without works, and he says, you believe that God is one. That's awesome. Good job. Even the demons believe that. And they tremble at the idea of it. Like, they get it, right? But James is like, but who cares, right? So we can hold those three beliefs, God, Jesus, the Bible. Okay, so what? Like, how does that save anybody would be James's language. How does that kind of faith actually do any good? And that's why the next three understandings of faith are super important. <laughs> and they're pre-modern, so they're not tainted necessarily as much as the Enlightenment, as much as the Reformation. So we look back, and so there's three other ways and three other things to think about with faith that give us a full picture. So one, faith is ascent. Two, faith as trust. And these aren't new things, right? Trust, a radical trust in God. Not trusting in true statements, a set of statements about God, but trusting in the actual thing, being, ground of being, whatever word you use, that is God. There's this beautiful biblical metaphor that we find often about God as a fortress or a rock or, or a solid foundation, right? The psalmist would write about this. Psalm 59 verse 17 says, but I will sing of your strength, extol your mercy at dawn, for you are my fortress. You are my refuge in times of trouble. We can find that over and over in both the Hebrew scriptures and in the Christian writings of the New Testament, right? And so, so part of faith is, is putting a radical trust in God in God's way, in God's vision, in our understanding of God as we experience in Jesus. And then thirdly, faith as fidelity. Faith as faithfulness to our relationship to God. This is a big deal all throughout the Bible. I mean, words, things like, concepts like idolatry speak to a lack of fidelity where I'm 
looking to other people to fulfill what God can fulfill in my life, right? And, and so there's this sense of fidelity, of loyalty or allegiance. So idolatry would be the word that we might find a lot in the Hebrew Bible. The positive affirmation of allegiance or loyalty to God would have been found in the earliest kind of creed of Christianity, Jesus is Lord. That was the first creed ever. Jesus is Lord, which meant Caesar's not, Herod's not, my family isn't, but Jesus is. And so part of faith is this allegiance to, again, not statements about God, not statements like the creed or the Bible or doctrines, but faithfulness to the God that all these things point to, right? That point to. So I'm centering my life on God as revealed in Jesus. Like I'm making decisions about my money. I'm making decisions about how I, I live and exist as a spouse, as a boyfriend, as a girlfriend, as an employee, as an employer. Like I'm faithful in my actions to my trust in God. Exodus 23, for the, for the ancient Israelites, it was the first of the Ten Commandments, right? You shall have no other gods before me. Interesting in the commandment is the assumption that there are other gods. You just don't put them before me. I just need to be number one, right? And, and so we pull from that, like that's this idea of loyalty, of fidelity. So Christianity is faithfulness to the way of Jesus, right? That metaphor, Jesus is Lord. And so when we bring that into our own lives, to say Jesus is Lord is to say, I choose the way of Jesus. My allegiance is there to this way of being, this way of seeing my neighbor, this way of seeing my enemy. And I live in this path, this way, more than I am of an American, more than being rich or poor or gay or queer or Republican or Democrat or independent or whatever it might be. My, my faithfulness is to God. My fidelity is to Jesus. And that is still what the Christian faith calls us to. Otherwise, it may just as well be a social club, right? Because there's a vision for what God's reign on earth looks like. And it's not doctrinally based. It's grounded in love, right? Loving God, loving your neighbor, with all your being, right? That's faithfulness. It's faithfulness of those relationships. So Jesus would, would, would kind of say the first commandment, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself, right? This is what it was, right? So fidelity to those two relationships. And then finally, the fourth idea, the fourth kind of part of faith is faith as vision, Faith as vision, not as a vision, but as vision, as a way of seeing, a way of seeing the essence of reality. So faith, a, a faith-filled way of seeing is to say, this is what I understand and how I understand the nature of reality to be, the nature of that God. And so it's based in this idea that Paul says when he's talking to a group of people trying to help them understand Jesus, he says, well, let me tell you about this God that you call an unknown God. This is the God that your philosophers have said, in Him we live and move and have our being. This is not supernatural theism, this idea that God lives out there and intervenes every now and then. This is one of, in my opinion, one of the most inspired two-step forward, three-step forward passages in all of the Bible, that God is not Zeus. <laughs> and so the question becomes, what is that thing in which we live and move and have our being at its essence? Like, what is the core reality there? And we have kind of three options, right? First is that this reality, this, this thing which is propelling us all forward is, is either hostile and threatening, 
is indifferent or is life-giving and nurturing. So the way in which we think and see and envision this God, this reality, is one of those three. And it becomes important because the way in which we see and understand and think about that reality is what we will embody as people. Right? That's what we will become. So if we understand and think about God as hostile, judgmental, threatening, then guess what we're going to do? We will embody that. It's why somewhere, somewhere in the history of our faith tradition, we picked up the ability to parent in such a way that our children could do something that would warrant excommunication from the family. Because if we believe in a God that will at the end of time make things right through eternal conscious punishment in hell that has no restorative value, then we can justify sending our kids out into the hell of their own. That's the only way it comes. So if, if you don't think it matters, it does. And some of you have sat in here and I've, 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 I've watched the tears fall from your face as you describe that experience in your own family. So the way we think about the ultimate reality matters. If it's hostile and threatening and judgmental, then that's what we'll embody. If it's indifferent, that's what we'll embody. This is an issue that exists in many forms of Christianity. Well, God set everything in motion and now we're just here, kind of indifferent to things. So what do we become? We become indifferent. We become indifferent to the realities of the plight of our planet and nature. We become indifferent to the realities of the poor and the marginalized. And so if that's the way we imagine and think of God, this, this thing in which we live and move and have our being, then we will naturally do the same. But if we see God like Jesus did, as nurturing, generous, life-giving, affirming, that's what we'll embody. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter, nine, Matthew chapter 6. People were filled with anxiety, anxious about everything. He says, look at the birds in the sky. They don't sow, they don't reap. They gather nothing into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. What does Jesus say? The ultimate reality is nurturing. And they've done nothing to deserve it. They're lazy. They don't sow they don't reap. They don't go to work. They didn't get an education. They don't build barns. All those things that we value and we say, this is why you're successful, right? Like Jesus is like, whoa, hold on a second. Our ground of being is good. Our ground of being is better than we could ever imagine. Our ground of being is, is nurturing and loving. And then he says, are you not more important than them? Oh, come on. And so these three like pre-modern ways of embracing faith and living faith, trust, fidelity, vision, they call us, they invite us to say, okay, I'm going to hold my faith dear. It's going to be precious. I, I, I'm going to give my loyalty to this way. I'm going to give myself, I'm going to commit myself to it in relationship, right? And, and a much of our tradition is grounded in the ancient creeds. I'm not down on the creeds. The creeds are, were written in Latin, and they start with this word credo. That's why they get the word creed from, okay? So credo in Latin mean, like, is translated, I believe. But it's actually two Latin words that come together that mean, I give my heart to. I give my heart to. Now, see, that reframes it, right? I give my heart, right, to the God that I recognize as one seen in Jesus. I give my heart to that, right? I, I, I give my life into that. I live for that relationship. 
that deepest level of me. And so here's what I don't want us to miss as we think about a fresh perspective on faith, is that a fresh perspective understands faith as primarily a matter of the heart. And I use the word primarily important, like that's an important word, because it's not only a matter of the heart, but faith. To say I'm a person of faith for me has evolved to it really doesn't mean what I believe or hold to be accurate truth statements about God. Faith is about the way in which I live my life with trust and faithfulness to this vision of Jesus for the world and believing and seeing that this ultimate thing we call God, others call different things, is good, is good. And so we hold that. And, and it's grounded in these three things that I affirm. I affirm God is real. I believe that as a cognitive reality. I believe that Jesus is central to my understanding and my experience with God, His way, His teaching, his life, his death, his resurrection. And I hold that the scripture is my central document, right? Those are my three things. Like it's, that's why I love Marcus Borg's book. I was like, oh, thank you. This is how I think, right? It's like, that's just it. I'm a, I'm a, in one sense, I'm a pretty simple person as, as it relates to that. I can't get rid of those three no matter how hard I try just because it's my tradition. And this kind of faith, this fresh perspective is, is really powerful because it does a couple of things, right? When we think about what is it, what it, how does this information make me a better person? How does this information make the world a better place? Well, a fresh perspective on faith, right? It reclaims something very powerful. It reclaims a way of being Christian focused on relationships. And there's something when we say that, when we hear that, it's like, well, duh. But but we've inherited over, over really a couple hundred years a way of being Christian that is, that is actually the opposite of being grounded in relationships, is being grounded in being right. And I don't know if you know this or not, <laughs> but there are two things. There, there's a, a, one thing that's very, very difficult to maintain a good relationship in is always having to be right. Any, any person who's been in a relationship longer than a, a week recognizes, if I always have to be right, this is not going to work, because I'm going to have to find somebody who's always wrong. <laughs> and so we can focus on relationships, which is the heart of Jesus. Love God, love others. The entirety of the law of the Bible is found in these two relationships, my relationship with God and my relationship with what God loves. And so this way of being Christian, this peacemaking life, this Christian life, it becomes as simple, this faith, is, it's as simple but as challenging as love God and love what God loves. So when somebody asks me if I have faith, that's what I mean. I live a life loving God and loving what God loves because I've seen the other things get emphasized and I just live a little bit later on in history. It's not to be judgmental because chances are if I would have been born 150 years ago, I'd have done the same exact thing. I just have the benefit of being born later. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not so prideful to say that I would have never used the Bible to justify slavery had I been around. I'm not saying I would have never used the Bible to justify the oppression of women had I not been around then. I just have the benefit of being born later. That's why grace is so beautiful. Because I recognize there's going to come along somebody who's just right now in high school getting ready to graduate. And in about, you know, 50 years when I retire, they're going to come and pass across roads and 
and hopefully have learned a whole bunch of stuff about God that can take us forward and I can sit like our founding pastor, John Smith, and continue to exist as part of a beautiful community of faith that's always growing, that's building on what we learned together. It's building on how we failed together. See, the problem is when we don't grow, when we don't build on those things. So that's the central meaning of faith, to just live this life. And I do it from a Christian perspective. That's Jesus, God, the Bible. And what I love about this way of faith is that it grows open-mindedness. Or what the Bible calls a heart of flesh. It's the same thing. I, have, I want a fleshy heart, God. I want a heart that is molded and shaped and changed by the image of God that's found in you and in people from other cultures and other religions and other ways of exploring. And I want to be open to new experiences and new perspectives and new ways of thinking. I want to be filled with curiosity and critical thinking. I want to know that I'm wrong and I want to be longing for the moment when I have another salvation experience to think, oh, I'm a little bit closer to the reality of this thing called God. I can explore different viewpoints without being afraid because I, I have to have it all right or this way of being is going to judge me and send me off to eternal darkness. And I can find greater understanding and a bigger heart to love. So as we wrap up, we got this great song that says, don't know if I believe it, but I guess I'll try to receive all that you have for me. And as, as they sing this song, I just encourage you to consider what God might be inviting you into today. Maybe God's inviting you to just take some time and say, wow, maybe my faith has been really grounded on the certainty of some doctrines that aren't bad. I'm not, it's not wrong to hold to certain things. Those are good. They provide a, a sense of a, a road to travel on, but have they become so, so, such spaces of certainty that I've actually lost a softness of heart, that I've actually lost some freedom, and they've become a new kind of law, a yoke that isn't easy, that isn't light, that isn't Jesus. Maybe you're finding these conversations to be a little decentering, which is good. It's part of what God always does is decenter us. It's how we grow, but you want to talk about it. Maybe join a conversation group. Maybe, I hope all of us sense the Spirit of God in encouraging us to embrace a faith that's more about trust and fidelity and vision and less about assenting to the right doctrines. Let's talk about those things. Let's, uh, let's explore them. Let, let's debate those things. I'm all for it. I, I, I trust me, that's a lot of fun for me. But let's find a faith that's grounded in loving God, loving neighbors. Like, that's what faith is. It's a way of being. It's why we talk about the peacemaking path. So they're going to play this song. You can finish filling out your Connect card, your giving envelope. We're going to pass the buckets or the baskets or whatever, and you can put your giving, uh, your, your Connect card in there, your giving envelope, and just help out the room hosts. If there's gaps in rows. You know, you can, you can move across and talk to people and hand them the basket, I promise. The basket's not electrified. If you don't put something in it, it doesn't shock you or anything like that, you know. But I know our room hosts will help. And if you're at a table, just drop it in there. If you're uh, in the, what do we call that? It's not a balcony. I always call it balcony. <laughs> if you're in the bleachers, thank you, Dennis. If you're in the bleachers, there's some kiosks you can use to drop that. So we'll sing this song, and then we'll have our blessing for the week. And 